0: Mullen has been rolling up a whole bunch of shady uh, companies, one of which had been selling uh, a, a magical battery-extending black box. It's this black box with a red wire and a black wire coming out of oh, it. Oh, yeah, 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 it was t- They were telling the DC like public works department that if they, they – sp- put these on their cars it would like extend the battery life and the range and all this stuff it was like a classic like you know the secret like carburetor that lets your car run on water kind of scam <laughs> and they totally got the fleet managers at the at dc for like seven hundred thousand yeah. dollars. and of course this was part of like one of the many like scammy companies that's been rolled up into Mullen. anyway Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludacris, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And
1: I'm Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor at TechCrunch and consulting producer of Downey's Dream Cars.
2: Mm, I've watched that show. Good show. Uh, And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association um, and author of The Driver, the true story of the cannonball run and producer of Apex, the secret race across America, because I'm shilling today, hardcore and the most honest and Sometimes popular, but not always, strategic consultant advisor in the mobility and transportation space. Welcome to the Atomic It's it's been a minute.
1: Yeah, it has been a minute, and um, I slipped in. I had to slip in the, my extra bio because I only have always have one, and you guys always have like five. So I'm going to milk it for like a few more episodes and then I'll just let it fade away.
2: I've missed you. You know, I totally forgot what I was going to say, which is now that I'm an Arizona resident, I, want, I refer to waking up in Scottsdale as American Arrakis. <laughs> it's hot. It, it's hot. Yeah. Um, did you see, you know, something, I forgot to put this on the topic list. Did you see, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm in full attack mode today. Did you okay. see the Jalopnik headline, which is... um EVs don't work in hot weather or something like that, or EVs just aren't built for hot weather. Did you see that? You see that one? I'm not seeing that. I, okay.
1: saw your, I saw your tweet or eek or whatever it's called now.
2: Okay. So as, listen, my business partner in my consultancy, Joel Johnson, he was a re- OG Gawker Media. I wrote for Jalopnik. I'm a big fan of snark, but there is smart snark and there was crossing the line to like abject, like stupidity, like knowing willful stupidity. And I say this because I have a Tesla. I daily drive it. I daily drive it in the hottest city in America. And I'm not talking cool. I mean, it's just, it's 115 here every day. And so (laughs) I drive that Tesla with AC on full blast. It's a Model 3 long range. I wake up. I put my daughter in it. We drive from Scottsdale, okay, to her school in Gilbert. It's probably like 20 miles. And then I drive another 20 miles to work. And then I drive another 20 miles to go back and get her. And then twenty miles home. There's a lot of driving, and with AC on full blast, and it's absolutely no problem if you plug in and charge your EV overnight, like any okay. rational person should. And uh, so Jalopnik has no business. Well, hold with on, a stupid headline.
0: Hold, hold on, yeah. So Jalopnik was was reblogging an, an automotive news story that's based on a. Uh, um, an EV battery company or uh, an EV battery and range analytics company's study of 65,000 or uh, sorry 17,000 vehicles 65 different models and and just so you know i mean this 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 explains your experience uh they said that tesla's had the smallest heat degradation of of any of the 17 uh, uh the, any of the 65 models that they that that surprise, are in the, the data but but teslas do also have the widest gap between their real world range and the epa estimates regardless of weather so you know like anything else i mean we're in the early days of this technology and and you know i think uh it, you know clearly there's trade-offs right like there's i think it, it's so easy to want to think like oh one way of doing things is just better tesla has been very good at <laughs> marketing what it does as better but like all
2: these things are there are trade-offs right you know, Ed, I will acknowledge everything you said is, is true. However, to just sti- stick an ice pick in the face of Jalopnik's <laughs> bad faith headline, they used a picture of a bunch of Teslas at superchargers. What yeah. they should have done to support that headline, any good faith journalist, say someone of Im- I- 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 total credibility like Kirsten yeah. Korosek would have used an image of perhaps a vehicle with horrible range sitting yeah. next to a broken charger would have been maybe a good faith image to use. Am I yeah. right, Kirsten?
1: Are you done ranting? <laughs> okay. I mean, You said we bring can, the we fire. It. You said bring it. I'm here. Right. We can have a whole episode like complaining about headlines or right, moving on. Talk moving about on. other news. <laughs> yeah. So a lot happened. I was, I was gone on a much needed vacation. Um, and aside from taking many forms of transportation to get there. And also while I was there, I've been a little bit out of the loop, but a few things did catch my eye while I was gone. Um, one, one of the spicier ones was Cruz putting a full page ad in the New York times, um, <laughs> and the reaction to that. So, uh, you know, my understanding is, and I, and I did see the ad or saw an image, of the ad, a full page ad and in it, really dumb. um, claims about how humans are bad. Bad drivers, um, and and really kind of marketing the the promise of autonomous vehicles. Cruise being one of one of the companies out there that is now you know giving rides in driverless vehicles, but the reaction was maybe not what they expected, but probably should have expected. What happened? <laughs>
0: do, do you want me to do you want me to read that? I have the ad copy in front of me. So it says sure. it says in big letters it says humans are terrible drivers. It says f- slightly smaller letters 42,795 Americans were killed in car crashes last year. And then it says you might be a good driver but many of us aren't. People cause millions of accidents every year in the US. Cruise driverless uh, cars are designed to save lives. Our cars are involved in 92% fewer collisions as a primary contributor. They also never drive distracted, drowsy or drunk. Um so, yeah, um, I mean, look, like I, I certainly think that, you know, a lot of the criticism I think there's there's definitely some valid we've discussed sort of the, the situation in San Francisco. Like there's definitely some very valid criticism. I do think though that like most of the criticism of the robotaxi companies Cruise and and, and Waymo and and Zoox, I think is also operating in San Francisco, I think is really overblown in light of you know, how much more dangerous, you know, what Tesla's doing is. Um, and I think if you want to criticize this technology, like it, it, credibly, you know, you should focus on where the more real the the real and present like risks are. But I have to say, this kind this ad is like so emblematic of the worst instincts that that the A B sector has when it comes to communicating about this technology. It's like a it's like a it feels like a time capsule of like <laughs> The, the most like frustrating talking point – and I say this as, again, as I'm a really big believer in this technology and its, and its potential um, – rhetorically, if you look through each of the claims that's being made here, it's just not done in good faith, right? Like 42,795 Americans were killed in car crashes last year. How many miles did humans drive? You know what I mean? Like, like yes, humans are bad drivers, but actually really – you know, considering like it's, it's a law of large numbers thing, right. And, and, and how many cruise vehicles are on the road? How many miles are they racking up? How, like, like we don't have a statistically significant sample size of AVs on the road to compare them to these, you know, national level statistics. We don't have anywhere close to it. Um, and, and yet there's this like real impulse on the part of these AV companies to to me, it's like they're leveraging this assumption that technology is always safer than humans. Technology doesn't make mistakes. Humans make mistakes. And therefore, technology must be safer. And so so that's kind of what they're doing. They're playing to this preconception with, with very lazy and, frankly, mis- misleading argumentation, I think. Um, but that's the, Alex, what you, what's your take on this?
2: Kirsten, do you want to go first?
1: Well, I mean, my only comment is that it's just like it's a flex that is just inviting disaster because as soon as companies or, you know, tech, the tech Illuminati make a claim like that and boldly stand by it, inevitably something like truly terrible and tragic happens. And I'm not, you know, wishing or wanting for that to happen, but it is a little, it, it's the opposite of being cautious. Like again, like having this flex of, this is what we're doing to save lives. As soon as something happens, people will point back to that ad, or you know, uses as fodder to attack the company. So, strategically, it just seems a little bit um, impulsive. I'm sure they had many meetings about this, but it's still <laughs> it still feels impulsive somehow, um, and maybe a bit a bit misguided. Um, particularly because I guess my question is why now like what what's the what's the lobbying push that they're what is the end goal with that well we all know that
2: that they're they're all the av companies are you know waiting for cpuc to give them permits to operate 24 7 freely and and they're taking a lot of heat because sfmta has been you know turning up turning up the turning up the temperature let me just and, say that- – and,
0: and Alex, just to add, on top of that, it's also the trucking. There's a battle over AV trucks in California.
2: The, yes. the state legislature wants to uh, – So
0: AVs are very political issue in California right now. I'm not sure Cruz right
2: cares about that. And my sources at Cruz – I have friends at Cruz – tell me that there was a lot of internal debate over whether or not to run that ad. Um, the thing is – and all the critics – I mean I some of the critics are friends of the pod and some of them are not. Um, but what's really unfortunate is that, like that ad, like a magnet – basically pulled everyone on the fence over to the side of the Luddites because of the points you both just made about like just tone deafness, absolute tone deafness. But they're, like, the higher level, like philosophical mistake of running that ad is that Cruise is GM's baby. GM, like every OEM that sells cars steering wheels, relies on selling cars to people who like driving. That's what they do. And so to flat out say, we're here to save lives and, and autonomous vehicles are the thing, is to set crews up in like philosophical opposition to, to selling cars or steering wheels, which GM is the business of doing, and probably about ten to twenty years before you want to make that argument, because you cannot, even if AVs were 100 safe today, you can't. You're just not going to scale them on roads and make them ubiquitous for decades. So yeah. there's they're like putting like. A stake in the ground that, like you said, Kirsten, is going to come back to bite them for a long time. Yeah. And you didn't need to be Nostradamus to know that's what was going to happen. Big, I'd, I'd say it's probably up there as was one of the top five gravest mistakes in like autonomy and automated driving. PR that history. seems theory. like a
1: bit of a. Story. No, I mean, a, I, I don't a, know theory. if I would go that far. It's I'd say it's there. one of the
0: bigger mistakes of this year so far, for sure.
2: Um top five for me. We'll
1: discuss the, the other, this
2: in a year.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing I want to, I really want to point out here is that like this seeds the moral high ground that I would like to see a company like Cruz use to take on Tesla. Right. So, so, The one thing that's propping up autopilot and full self-driving, the the reason it's sort of fundamentally allowed on the roads, I think, is because Tesla is getting away with making the safety claim that it's safer than humans. And as we've discussed on the show many times, and as Noah Goodall's paper has proven, you know, peer-reviewed paper, like it's a lie. And unfortunately, what Cruise is doing here is essentially, it's almost like a weaker version of the same kind of claim. And so any like moral authority that Cruise might have as a company that is doing this technology, relatively speaking, the right way to sort of say, hey, like as a leader in the space, we think it's really misleading and bad what Tesla's doing, which they're not doing anyway, really. Uh, You know, uh, they've lost that that moral high ground, I think, um, as long as they're making claims like this, because they're essentially saying the the same kind of thing. And so once again, it kind of feels like Cruise is is in a lot of ways, you know, the company and the, the level four company that is most closely trying to like ape Tesla a little bit.
2: Actually, one last point here. Koopman, our boy, Phil Phil Koopman, did have – did post on LinkedIn a few days ago that Waymo has – gave crews a masterclass in how to do public relations during a sensitive time. And Waymo uh, rolled out – I don't know. Was it a press release or no? It was a statement from like a disability organization asking for them please roll that taxi as soon as possible, which is probably like tonally absolutely the right message to roll out, um, you know. Just as a comparative to what to what Cruise did, I, but I want to give Cruise props. They did announce something very smart a couple of days ago. They announced that they've begun testing in Miami, mm-hmm.
0: uh,
2: and as a former executive at Argo AI, an area you know, an area you yeah, know very well. And you know, I w- I've been waiting for someone, Motional, Cruz, or uh, Waymo, to announce a, a Miami deployment because the. Groundwork for acceptance was laid by Argo and the team of people that I got to work with down there for years. And it's a city that needs, actually, AVs are really optimal for, for Miami. And there's a lot of goodwill that left behind, left on the table by, um, after Argo's departure. So I was hoping someone would show up and take that place. And I hope that Cruise makes a good faith effort to, to execute well. I really hope because there are cities that are much more optimized for AV deployment. Phoenix is one of them. I love taking Waymo's here. I love it. And I hope that cruise nails this for Miami because Miami needs it.
1: Yeah. I'm curious to see how um, quickly they accelerate in Miami. We've seen them actually expand pretty quickly in Austin from hey we're there testing and mapping etc to actually you know giving rides and the origin is there I'm not giving rides yet but but certainly on the roads testing so interested to see what happens in Miami in terms of um whether origin is used for testing there do we know that or is it just the Chevy bolts right now and when are they going to when are they going to have Writers. This is one, one area where I, I saw this announcement um, or the tweet or whatever, but it didn't um, – I was on vacation, so didn't get all the details.
2: My spies on the ground have said that they will be letting me know what they see. You know, somebody uh, sent me a message yesterday saying, isn't it amazing how in all the hoopla in San Francisco, um, you know, and crews leading that, we have not heard one mention – about Zooks, and they asked me why and I said well there's two possibilities possibility one is they if the rate of complaints scales with the number of vehicles in the road then Zooks may not be running enough vehicles enough hours and that's possible but I suspect there's something else um I suspect and this is if you look at um we don't know the total miles um you know for each company how many cars the hours operate I mean we have we can infer it but we don't have absolutely great data um it's it's quite clear that the like operational depth of bench at a Waymo, like how many people in operations monitor the vehicles, you know, the the time the delay times between a vehicle stopping and something being resolved, it seems like Waymo, all the years that, that Waymo spent in Phoenix, that they honed their operational depth of bench to a level that is at least today probably the best in the sector. But Zooks, I think, may very quietly have done that too in a way that maybe Cruz hasn't based just on the volume of complaints.
1: Well a couple I, of I, points. So oh just ahead. really quickly on the Zooks thing. One, they're they're only driving their test vehicles in San Francisco proper. Their custom vehicles aren't in San Francisco proper. They're in foster city in a super controlled environment between the two campuses. Very different environment, Silicon Valley environment, not San Francisco environment. And and I, I will say I had an a eight-hour layover in San Francisco yesterday. <laughs> and so just took the BART down into the city and was down there for, I don't know, we were walking around for maybe 15 minutes or so before I saw a cruise and a Zooks going opposite directions, but both with um, safety operators. It was more of an engineering exercise, it looked like. Um, than anything else. But, you know, you don't have to wait around long to see a Zooks vehicle, but certainly you see the cruise and Waymo vehicles, uh, a factor of 10 more, you know, there's yeah. just simply more of those vehicles and none of them are taking rides right. passengers. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's that presents a, a different difference. thing.
2: Yeah. I, I think, I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm speculating that Zooks m- may be like very stealthily doing a really great job. This is what I'm hearing.
1: Well, yeah, they might I mean, be, but we don't know until they're actually driverless in the city to give a true comparison.
0: And I, I feel like Zooks has uh, a little bit of a, I mean, so first of all, I think isn't their their main the first commercial deployment is going to be Las Vegas, right? It'll be it'll be airport runs at Las Vegas, so they they kind of have a, a a more narrow focus. And I think one of the things to me that that makes the difference with Zooks is that they can kind of keep quiet and focus on the deployments that 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 they're pursuing they don't because they're wholly owned by Amazon at this point they don't need to like show that they can scale right whereas like every other company well i guess i guess cruise is in less of that position although i think they're under pressure internally from gm but um and 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 i know certainly that they wanted an ipo um like that that a lot of the people at at cruise have wanted an ipo or, or an exit that's not just gm but but cruise uh, but zooks does seem like one of the one of the few l4 companies that does doesn't seem to be playing some kind of investor game, and they are just kind of focused on, on. But but they're also really quiet, so it's hard to know what's going on inside. Sometimes
2: you want to talk about uh, this new federal agency that uh, is going to be looking at AV behaviors. Yeah, why don't you tell sure. us about it? I was hoping you'd want to talk about.
0: It. <laughs> well, it's not really a. It's a. It's a program. Uh, uh, so it's it's through. And it's it's called AV Step um which is called uh ADS equipped vehicle safety transparency and evaluation program um you know the the this kind of seems like an evolution to me of the of the uh um voluntary safety self assessment the VSSA program it's, it it seems like kind of an evolution of of the approach that we've seen mm-hmm. thus far which is you know to essentially just um really really emphasize sort of a uh a more like you know demonstrate your safety uh but but it also does get around what one of the big the big stumbling blocks which has been FM, FMVSS is the law right, and so you you know it you can't just it's been very difficult to put vehicles g m in particular right has been trying to get exemptions from FM, FMVSS for a very long time to to deploy without a steering wheel so um it doesn't seem radical to me, but uh yeah what makes it
2: know, notable
1: it, to you alex like what what is seem very fired up.
2: Phil I'm looking at, I'm looking at the Koopman uh, post and he seems to be, he's thing he seems to think it's a big step forward. I don't know. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean,
2: it, I, I, here's the shorter, here's, uh, here's what I see behind the scenes. There's a, there's lots of critics and outsiders and skeptics of AV who want to take, you know, dat, whatever data can get their hands on and just say, can't work. And even if it could, it's not good for cities. Um, and then you have I'm, uh, Jeffrey Tumlin from SFMTA is saying, "Well, we'd love for it to work, but it's got you know, but we need to know that it does, and we'd like to have some awareness of how it works so we can fit into the ecosystem." But then you've got you know some cities and maybe this organization looking for expertise um, to assess limited data. I'm not convinced that there are. Like, The majority, in fact, almost everyone I know who's uh, who really understands how IVs operate and what safety means works for a company. Like I'm not convinced that there is a regime yet that knows how to assess this stuff. I was one of these. I worked at one of these companies for four years, and I think I have a better handle than most. And I haven't met a lot of people like me. I mean, I I, I haven't. So who is making these going to make these assessments at a federal level, let alone a state level? I, I like. I just I don't see enough quote unquote experts out there to to pass these judgments.
0: Right. And and that's I think that's what this approach is sort of right. So so there's a um, a quote from Anne Carlson, who's the acting um, administrator of NHTSA, um, you know, where she basically describes this as a uh she said it will hasten NHTSA's progress towards establishing an effective governance structure. So they're not even saying this is not like a, a, an actual regulatory regime. Basically what it is is it's an expansion of the of the the oldest deal in the AV regulatory book which is you provide us with data about your vehicles and and we'll monitor it and in exchange for that data sharing agreement will allow you to have deployments over 2500 vehicles which was sort of the limit for under the exception uh, exemption sort of approach that was done before and and like this is i, I mean I I don't know, like I don't know what kind of data they're collecting. There's a lot, like the devil is is absolutely in these details. To me, what's fascinating about this is that, you know, certainly in California right now, and and among you know, I would say sort of the urbanist left or whatever, there's a lot of excitement around the idea of like regulating AVs, right? That that this is a technology that needs to be sort of reined in and, and and sort of controlled, and I think. I think – I understand why they think that, right? Because you have this juxtaposition here. We were just talking about how the AV companies are making all these claims about the safety of these vehicles without the data to do it. And and here's the government saying we can't actually institute a formal regulatory regime because we need more data. We need to understand what's actually going on here. And so this is like a halfway step. And I'm sure this is going to piss off the urbanist left because they're going to say, oh, this is just, you know, we should be doing full regulation and and we're not. And instead we're just sort of – it's sort of – again, it's sort of a formalized expansion of the basic approach that, that's been happening so far. Um, but I think that like – if you look and and i always every time i do zoom calls i always point to the i have on the the bookshelf behind me the the license plates that the state of nevada issued in like 2014 or 2015 you know for privately owned autonomous vehicles like again and again and you see this in california too where they put all these regulations in place but didn't it didn't occur to them that trucks were actually going to be like one of the first major deployments. Like when it comes to regulation, the record is clear. I think there's been more mistakes made by regulating too early than there have been too late. I think there are exceptions to this in the ADAS space in particular, but when it comes to the level four vehicles, I think that, that, that regulating too early has created a lot of, 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 of of issues. And so anyway, so I think politically this is going to make nobody happy, but Pragmatically, <laughs> if they don't have enough data to 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 say what's safe and what isn't, what are you going to do but collect data so that you can then at some point make the rules?
1: I guess right. I mean it is a natural first step I don't know if it's the first step, but it's a natural step to take um, but it still doesn't totally resolve what Alex brought up, which is how and who is assessing these. And, and what my guess will be is that it will be a pretty generically low bar of assessment. You know what I mean? Because if you go too strong or, or too specific, you can basically end up getting into technology picking and which most regulation, you know, generally, or the people lobbying for or against it generally try to avoid. Um, and then, So but if you do that, then it can be very watered down. So it'll be interesting to see like what what they are even assessing and who does it. Is it a third party? Is it a new government agency? Is it you know who's doing it? Is it left up to the states? Do the states even have the resources to do that?
0: Well, and this is also just the federal level approval of like, can these vehicles be on the road, right? We still, what this doesn't resolve is the biggest contradiction in this entire regulatory regime, which is that vehicles are approved at the federal level and drivers are regulated at the state level. Um, and then and then traffic laws are enforced at the city level. I mean, right? Like this is the, the whole problem with AVs is it bundles together all these things that are t- super disaggregated in the human driven paradigm. And so- um so i mean i think like like if you if regardless of what you think about the situation in san francisco whether you think it's a you know a, a witch hunt or or a, a you know reasonable response to you know unaccountable tech companies whatever like that's not going away like cities will still ha- be enforcing traffic rules on the ground states still technically licensed drivers like this is this is just one piece of what when we think of all of the the levels on which AVs need to be not just regulated, but then also have you know just have local law enforcement and, and, and emergency responders prepared for the various outcomes that that happen when these when these vehicles are on the road. So
2: you know, yeah, like get you of know, self-driving, shall we wrap up with our final autonomous or self-driving topic then other fun stuff? Tesla, last week, Musk was on a call and he said, "Oh yeah, um, Tesla's in discussions with a major OEM to license FSD. Who do you, setting aside how it works, whether it works or not, and safety issues, Ed? Because you wrote it. I, I know you have a lot to say. Um, I ran a poll on my Twitter um, on my X account, <laughs> um, asking people to vote on who they thought that OEM was. Let me pull it up here. Uh, and my, I, uh, I, I put the ones I thought it was likely to be. And let's see, what did I have? I had uh, Stellantis. Uh, wait, where is it? Where did it go? Where's my poll? Um, oh, my God. That, how
1: far? What, your I'm, poll disappeared on X on former yeah, I, Twitter? Shocking. That website works so
0: well, though. <laughs>
2: my poll disappeared.
1: I mean, oh, there's one. never here anything buggy wait, happening there.
2: Here we go. Okay. For, here, Renault, Nissan, Stellantis, Mazda, or JLR. And let me just tell you, why did I exclude uh, the others? Because I just think... That the others are just not likely to be be the candidates. So, where would you like to talk about my exclusions, or which of these four is I most think likely to I think Tesla? it was Mullen. <laughs> what
0: Mullen? <laughs> yeah, How did exactly. You know, a huge Who? EBTR. What? Yeah, <laughs> yeah huge. Giant.
1: They're the ones. <laughs> they're
0: they? the ones. Did you hear about the? Did you hear the story where Mullen had bought this this company from this guy, and and this guy had gotten Bullinger. a. Like a no, 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 different company. But oh, okay. Mullen has been rolling up a whole bunch of shady uh, companies. One of which had been selling uh, a, a magical battery extending black box. It's this black box with a red wire and a black wire coming out of oh, it. Oh yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. It was. T- they were telling the DC like public works department that if they they. Sp- put these on their cars, it would like extend the battery life and the range and all this stuff. It was like a classic, like, you know, the secret, like carburetor that lets your car run on water kind of scam. And they totally <laughs> got the fleet managers at the at DC for like $700,000. <laughs> and of course this was part of like one of the many like scammy companies that's been rolled up into Mullen. Anyway.
2: But was it was a major OEM Ed? So do you guys want to vote? I, I, I maybe mean, Kirsten doesn't. Okay. Was it it's Fisker. it's Fisker. It's Fisker How do you know it's Fisker? It's Fisker. I'm I'm not I don't know. I'm guessing. That's my that's my guess. It's Fisker. no well, it's not a bad guess. I don't know. Um the number one uh let's see with with I don't know how many votes it got, but the winner of the poll was Stellantis. It was Stellantis. Yeah.
0: It could number be them.
2: two I mean was Renault Nissan, then JLR, then Mazda. Although I mean I guess it comes sense. down
1: to a company so so <laughs> I know that there has been speculation. I've have seen a few blogs out there that uh, say it's Ford, um, nah. which would be a thing. The only reason why I thought about that even for a little, or considered or even for a half of a second, is because you know there is some history there with um, uh, Doug Field and mm. Tesla, but but. And, and, of course, there seemed to be an early alignment on the charging stuff. But that seems to be a bit of a stretch. Um, the, the thing is to you have to look at what companies aren't using Mobileye and haven't publicly said they're, you know, because that seems to be now the, the main company that people are turning to for their ADAS you know vw ford and others um so what automaker is left that isn't doing that
0: well and and i'll I'll go ahead and say it as like the biggest like i I think fsd is an absolute abomination it should be illegal I, i i don't you know but in the status quo where it's out there it's i mean who knows maybe it'll get maybe it'll get recalled or something at any moment. Like that's certainly there's, a, the investigations are ongoing about NHTSA and the department of justice. So uh, with that caveat, I mean, if part of the licensing deal is that, you know, any kind of legal liability <laughs> of any kind, which like doesn't really exist anyway. Cause the whole thing with FSD is that it's ultimately, you just dump it on the, all the legal liability is dumped on the driver, which is why it's fundamentally not self-driving, but like as another OEM, it, you know, in theory at least like if it's if you're licensing it from Tesla it's Tesla's technology if and when some kind of you know lawsuit or or, or legal consequences or whatever goes through um you know you can kind of say well we just licensed it from Tesla like it's their thing like it, it, to me it seems like there at least for other companies licensing it there's like a little bit of a limit to the downside potentially although at the same time i would not want to be seen as as you know i would not be want to be the ceo who licenses fsd and then six months later it gets recalled or there's some scandal or something
1: but the licensing technology isn't the same as how it is potentially used because uh you know companies might license a technology but put then guardrails on it for instance You're,
2: kirsten i love you because that's where i was going to go do you want to finish your thought
1: well no i mean just i, I think that that would that's a possibility The mistake, I think, is that automakers thinking that by putting guardrails on it, that it will somehow like if only if Tesla had a different approach to this FSD could be great. So we're going to do it. And that is maybe ignoring like the underlying fundamental like technology and whether it's good instead of like, you know, what I mean, it's it's an execution debate as opposed to like, is this is the foundation solid?
0: But I don't, I don't think – I mean, if, if, if you're just talking about putting driver monitoring, that's
1: – It could be other things, right? It could be how it's used, where it's used, limitations.
0: Okay, now um, we're getting somewhere. You know,
1: yeah, um, how it's communicated to the driver. like There's a lot of things you could add on that would put multiple guardrails or safeties in it. But that doesn't necessarily make that technology better. It just means Listen. it's less likely to be abused.
2: Listen. If you put a real DMS on it and you put a real ODD constraint on it, then that it would still be dangerous. Me.
1: Yeah, it I mean that's the thing. Back. Like that's anyway, that's
2: But like, you could dramatically reduce the risk factors of okay testing right? But then it still
1: doesn't answer the question of whether it is actual technology that is valuable and works. Um, true friends of mine who are in the in the let's say space, and I'll specifically say in the machine learning world, um, have their thoughts um, all using different words that mean garbage um, when <laughs> they describe <laughs> the, the system. Um, so. So that's, that's what you're working with. And I know there's many people out there who are like, this is the most amazing thing ever, blah, blah. And I'm sure Mm. we'll hear from them, but it, you can put a lot of guardrails on it, but it doesn't necessarily tackle the underlying question, which is, is the technology fundamentally good? And by the way, videoing yourself and showing it going through an intersection (gasps) and like at like celebrating it as amazing tech, that that doesn't mean that it's good. That's not.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, we, we, and unless yeah. the next thing you say is, "Have you heard about how uh, Omar was faking his videos?" Then, oh my God. then we have to just go to that. I, or I, we discuss it next okay, week.
0: Okay, we we can talk about that if you want. But but really quick, just on the so so the number one automaker in your poll was Stellantis. Is that right? Yeah, no, by far. Okay, so this the one scenario that I could see. Working is. I know that Stellantis um, is working a lot on off-road ADAS and driving automation. So I could see them potentially, maybe using it. And like you say, like hard ODD limits where you can only use it if you get like the loaded up Jeep Wrangler, uh, the next generation Jeep Wrangler. You can only use it sort of on off-road trails or something like that. Uh, that would it would be so it'd be very difficult to do. But I think like that, that to me that. That's how unlikely this is, right? Is that like that to me is like the plausible use case for this technology.
1: Well, I guess we have to prepare to be shocked because we've learned recently that auto automakers are willing to to jump One. on the Tesla bandwagon um, in the One charging.
0: Oh, in the charging, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I was wrong about. Which I was wrong about. So,
1: (laughs) I mean, I don't think any of us really saw that coming. Although the quality of the EV, like it's just so night and day for me in terms of the quality of the EV charging um, technology that Tesla has developed compared to its ADAS. So, I think it's it's one
0: of the company's most valuable assets, hands down.
1: Okay, what what was the last uh, ADAS item that you wanted to?
2: I was just going uh, to well no, that's that's for itis. I mean we we'll discuss it next week. There was somebody I forget his name ran a posted video on YouTube about how Holmars Catalog Omar had bought a comma device and used one of its features to deactivate or bypass the um, the uh, steering wheel torque nag function of FSD allowing Omar to Holmars Catalog to you know record videos, hours long videos of his Tesla driving around with no hands on wheel. And it's pretty compelling. And is it's, that's a thing. Um, that's a thing. Cause even I was wondering, I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. So of course it makes perfect sense that he had a nag defeat device. It's interesting. To- no, he's still out there. Uh, and he's claiming that it's not, a che- it's not a cheat because all, uh, because, um, the nags are not, are necessary basically. So, um, Anyway, uh, I I found that fascinating. The, the precise method we should discuss this in, in length in another episode. But the precise method is that if you um, you know if you raise lower the speed of um, FSD while it's engaged, it. It treats that as if it was a torque entry on uh, the right. steering wheel, and so what the comma system does, and there are other apparently there are other thing uh, packages that do this. It just raises the lower speed periodically as to uh, defeat the um, nag time interval. So anyway, for another episode, um, I know Ed is, Ed's wheels are spinning, and I see fumes coming out of his, of his headphones. Let's move on, Van I Moof.
0: Oh wait, hold on. You we got one more. We have one more, go. we have one more we AB. Yeah, we have one more AB. Yeah, we do that one Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what is our it? friends our friends at Aurora raised oh. uh, a big $820 million round. I they Ooh. they were I mean, I kind of assumed they must be raising money. I frankly was it, it must have been difficult. I, I I I was skeptical that they would be able to raise more money, but they've done it. $820 million. That's a significant chunk that you know, based on their, their progress at getting some of these trucks on the road, what they say, you know, their timeline to, you know, future completion,
1: whatever whatever you want, commercial
0: operations, this, this should in theory, get them either there or quite close to there. So,
1: right. So, so just to be clear, you know, for those who randomly stumble on our podcast, um, so Aurora is publicly traded. So this was a combined offering. They, they raised, $820 $820 million from a public and concurrent private offering of its stock. So um, as far as I know, I haven't looked at if there's been a recent filing since then, but the private, the, the company that, that um, the private offering, they don't list the company as for individual, as far as I know. Um, mm. And, and the, the interesting thing is, is that back in April, Aurora had filed for a proposed mixed shelf offering to raise $350 million. And if you don't recall about a year ago, I think it was September of last year, this is when the leaked memo um, made its circulation from the uh, co-founder and CEO, Chris Urmson, where basically it was like, these are all the things that might have to happen or that we have to weigh for us to preserve our cash position. And it was like, basically a spitball type of exercise that, that, um, was leaked. Um, and one of them of course was like, we need to raise money. (laughs) So that is probably a year in the making that they were able to do this. To me, what's really interesting is that, um, two thoughts sprang to mind immediately, which was, the economic uncertainty that's kind of been swirling around public markets and also specifically companies that have chosen to do SPACs has not been good and so their ability to raise money is notable and also the second thought I had was I wonder if to Simple's kind of demise and shifting away from U.S. markets has helped them because it can't, it any, can't have hurt
0: Embark too like see right. think about how much the, the, there's been like headwinds and tailwinds of the last year a year ago right Argo was still around, right? Bare- barely, but but it, w- it was right. Uh, but a year ago, Embark and and Too Simple were also both around. And so, right. on the one and hand, too simple, yeah, the-
1: was, too simple was pretty like directly um, competitive. Direct, yeah, exactly. And and you know, aggressively entering into markets and and certainly talking a big game and and it really was you started to see kind of the wheels coming off the too simple bus. They had had their internal dramas and stuff like that, but really from fall into what is, you know, right now where you saw deals falling apart and internal drama getting even more heated and um, you know, the ousting of CEOs and all these, all that garbage that really hurt its credibility. So any investor out there that is like any like somewhat bullish on AV trucking, where are they gonna put that money?
0: I mean there's not an there's not a lot of sort of big because Waymo's basically backed out of trucking too, haven't they?
1: They're certainly not as vocal about it, and there's been a number of stories that have reported, you know, internally that that there's that there's a backing away from it. They have externally, like publicly said they're still committed to it, but okay. but certainly you're not seeing the at least not lately the uh the amount of emphasis on it publicly
0: yeah I mean that doesn't because so there's the gatic but like the, I mean just this and locomation is are they well, I think I don't know last I heard they, got they acquired, were, they they were got service, acquired they got acquired okay yeah um so I mean yeah there's been a lot of a lot of consolidation in trucking just over the last year mm-hmm. and so yeah it's an interesting point though that it it makes it, it both makes it harder to convince investors that this is a viable space but for those investors who do believe in the uh, potential of autonomous trucking there's we a lot you. less competition <laughs> for those dollars
2: <laughs> all right can we move on to van moof yeah let's let's sure it'll awesome be one. it'll be our
1: w- one um it was a very heavy automotive um automated uh driving episode but we can tuck a little micro mobility in here so van moof, van moof. um <laughs> Give me the headline. They're dead. Bankrupt. What happened, Kirsten? Um, well, I want to... <laughs> there, There's a... TechCrunch had some great reporting um, on this. Our European team and um, Rebecca Bellin over on my team and on, on the U.S. team um, dug into this story and had the scoop earlier this month and... Basically the headline that we had was from man van move to van poof. Uh (laughs) How did the e-bike pioneer go bankrupt even as the market boomed? Basically the company has raised, um, you know, close to $200 million um, and they have now officially gone bankrupt. So our first story was earlier this month uh, kind of talking about or reporting out how things were not going well. And it all started by, um, actually it's kind of funny. There had been some speculation on Reddit and a little bit here and there, but they just stopped taking order. Like you couldn't order a bike. And these are popular bikes. Um, people really love the bikes. It wasn't a product problem, um, which is kind of interesting. Well, it wasn't a product I mean, problem. It wasn't a product what? design problem. Right, it wasn't a. I should say that it wasn't a product design problem, but clearly there are other there are other problems going on. So uh, initially, we broke the news that they had suspended bike sales, um, executives had departed, uh, things were not looking good, and there was some last ditch efforts to raise money, which which just didn't materialize. So the end result, which is the latest news story, is that they have they have officially gone bankrupt in in the Netherlands. Um, after just a week, I mean, barely a week into this like quote unquote administrative process to try to sort of save the company. So things I think were much worse than even we realized, um, because that, that kind of accelerated and happened very fast. So here we are with, uh, with another bike company that is, um, done.
0: Wow. Uh, (sighs) Go ahead, Alex.
2: It's too bad they were really cool looking bikes. So this—it's a
0: fascinating, like, thing, right? So everyone called te- te- uh, Van Moof the Tesla of e-bikes, right? And like, when you looked at the product, like, you got it, it was very slickly designed. It was very like well packaged. It was very—is they're they're connected. So that's one of the bizarre things is that now if you if you own a Van Moof, right, you now are faced with the possibility. So apparently, another Dutch company has made it so that. Like you can download a patch and make your Van Moof bike talk to their servers because if there's not a server and, and Van Moof is saying even in bankruptcy they're going to use their money to like keep the servers up, but these bikes do not work if there's not a server to talk to. These are internet connected bikes that do not work without that connection. And I think I believe Corey Doctoro
2: calls this the enchitification of technology. Yeah,
0: yeah. So enchitification is a yeah, it's a big complex thing. I. I'm not sure if this is specifically an example of that. I'm not sure I understand that the concept well enough, but but it is definitely like, is this necessary? And I think to me it's really interesting to contrast actually Van Moof and Tesla because in some ways they're really similar. They're both, you know, the the sort of the premium, the slick premium high-tech, like look lifestyle tech guy kind of well-branded option in the space. But EVs in, in, in electric cars, that premium high-tech segment is where all the action is. That's where, at least in the U S market, at least, right? Like like all of them are 60 to $80,000 or, or above like expensive premium high-tech cars with e-bikes. However, it, that market is still shaking out, and it looks to me a little bit like the dynamic is different there. Where e-bikes are already they're cheap compared to cars, but they're expensive compared to bikes, and so there's this weird. And and then of course, so that we haven't even talked about all the service issues that that are that are huge in, in all this. But it seems to me that e-bikes. It seems to me like in the U.S. at least, cars, electric cars are kind of drifting towards Tesla at the high end of the market. Although I think that market is also tapping out. Uh, but, but that on the e-bike side, it really seems like we the, the, the companies are stepping in and really making big market share gains in the last year or two have been like Aventon and some of these like really low end – not really low, but like much, much cheaper bikes that are really competing on price. And so I don't think that like having your e-bike connected to the internet – like I think that's a classic example of something – where I don't think that I mean in, in a car it has real value because it tells you where the chargers are and it allows you to do things that are fundamental to the operation of that car that matter to the user experience. On, on a bike, I don't know. I, frankly, I don't even know what a Van move needs an internet connection for. But like the co- like the value to the customer, I don't see how it could possibly be more than the cost, right? Um, and so, and so I think I think e-bikes fundamentally like like bikes. Are going to drift towards more of a commodity market, whereas EVs, unless the, something changes on the policy side of things um, in the U.S., are going are gonna to be sort of more premium thing. So it's interesting how like being like Tesla gets you a lot of hype. They raised two hundred twenty-five million dollars. Like everyone thought, Van Moof was going to be a world beater because they were the most like Tesla of anybody else in the e-bike space. But it turns out that e-bikes and cars. are the same markets just like cars and smartphones are not the same markets just like cars and laptops are not the same the same kind of market and i think that in a way they may be speed running a dynamic that may may even play out more broadly we'll see
1: well so just one little a couple tidbits from um one of our um, editors mike butcher who was kind of one of the leads on this story he he did a little bit of a you know autopsy of like you know analysis on what happened with van move and and one um, source of his, uh, uh, sort of an e-bike industry insider, um, told him that Van focused on marketing and spent big, but forgot to think about supply chain and unit costs, um, and apparently also may have overordered after the COVID delays. So, basically, putting this emphasis on marketing over product excellence and it kind of not paying as much attention to supply chain and unit costs (laughs) sort of all came together to create this problem
0: yep and and so if you if you really right so again they the slickest best looking bikes but but they put all their resources into that into into the design engineering side of it and to that like wowing people hoping that they would get people to spend crazy amounts of money on these things but again like one of the other ways that they that they underinvest or areas that they underinvest in is service, and this is a huge thing for the entire e-bike space, right? Is that and and I think at the end of the day, as a customer, if you're an early adopter, having the slickest, highest tech e-bike, whatever, there's some there's some cachet, and there's probably room for brands there, um, but there's also a lot of competition for it. For most people, I think that like having a pretty basic, not very fancy e-bike is just fine. I think people care much more about can I get this serviced. And and also, will it just like stop working if this company
1: goes bankrupt?
0: Um, but I don't well, think anybody think in the eBay space has figured out service.
1: People care. Yeah, people care more about that now than they did. So the rise of e-bikes, which we've seen over the past couple of years, there were a lot of folks who um, very much jumped in and and really weren't thinking about that. But the uh, you know implosion of companies like Van Move, all of a sudden you are like, oh wow, okay. So you are saying this does I can't like get this tour I can't use this anymore brings that uh, as an issue that I don't even think that a lot of people were necessarily even considering I'm sure some people did but not the ones who bought the van move right they were like all in because the design was so amazing and and that just goes to show like you can have you can initially have an amazing design um, and put money into that to that that engineering and but y- your profit margin <laughs> You will not make money on that. Um, you might raise money on that, but you will not make money on that. And so there is a point pretty early on in every company's life where they then have to shift because unless they want to always be in fundraising mode under the assumption that those economic conditions will always remain great, which of course they haven't, um, that's risky. That's a risky strategy, right? Like at some point, probably very early on, you want compelling design, but you also want to make sure that you can make them make a profit off of everyone you sell, whether you're selling that e-bike for $1,000 or $14,000, you better be making a profit to sustain your business. So you have to be thinking about your supply chain. You have to be thinking about costs um, and hopefully getting away from the cycle of, constantly having to fundraise. I mean, that should be the end goal. And I think for a lot of these companies, it just wasn't friend of mine at all.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of things. And I mean, just in my experience, I mean, so, so uh, my partner and I have have e-bikes and, and she crashed hers and broke like the screen. And it's like a Baofeng uh, or not Baofeng, Bafang. Ba no wait. One of them's a radio company. One's an e-bike motor maker. I can't. Baofang, Bafang. Anyway, whichever one, uh, it's it's one of the biggest Chinese suppliers of, of e-bike drivetrains. And I just assume she she broke the screen that little you know controls essentially the the, the drive train. It's where it has the you know, software in it and stuff. And and so I thought, oh, I'll just go. Bowing's a huge supplier. I'll just go and I'll just buy another. You can't, you cannot buy parts for these e-bikes. So that's actually another really interesting thing that I've kind of, my eyes have been opened up to is that even at the, the low end of the market, like there's not, and, and I think part of it is that the the technology is is changing, that they're continually updating, and and so old versions get left behind, and 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 they don't make extra parts for them. The margins, of course, are, are really really slow. But then there's also just not, you don't have companies that are going out and setting up chains of like AutoZone, you know, e-bike parts stores, and so you don't have a market for aftermarket parts. And so so again, like even with e-bikes, I feel like we're having we're running into a similar problem with EVs which is that you know we're making a lot of progress in developing these products that are easy to use and which zero out right our emissions from from mobility but these products are fundamentally they don't last very long and they're not designed and 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 supported to be kept on the road long term which is ultimately how you have a positive environmental impact because if we're just having to buy new e-bikes and new you know new batteries and new cars every 5 years instead of every 10 20 years uh, you know, the environmental benefits that, that we're hoping to see out of these are going to be elusive. It, it kind of makes more sense that it's happening at a car level because cars are kind of moving towards more fragile and, and, you know, kind of paradigm anyway. It's really depressing to see that the same thing's happening at an e-bike level, because like, this is where the the real solution kind of should be. And even here, we're seeing these problems where there's kind of almost like disposable products.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, we should, we ahead, should wrap
2: this up, but I have a question for you, Kirsten. Tell, did you write a story about the Chevy Bolt coming back yet? I did. Walk us through that.
1: Um, so let's end the episode with that. Another EV product that was slated for the trash bin is been rescued. So back in April, um, GM CEO and chairperson um, Mary Barra said, basically announced that they're going to stop producing the Chevy Bolt EV and the Chevy Bolt EUV, which is the larger version. Um, And that production was going to end by the end of this year. And that the Orion assembly factory, which was, which is where those vehicles are assembled now was going to be retooled and used for electric truck production. Um, And those, that this has now changed. The interesting thing at the time was that while Maybe the Chevy Bolt EV wasn't the best-selling EV on the marketplace. It was the company's highest volume EV. And it was actually at a price point that made it accessible to the vast majority of new car buyers out there, meaning it wasn't you know a $60,000 vehicle. And all the other vehicles that they have sort of slated... You know, or had come out, were all super high-end, as we've seen other automakers do. So this is going to come out as a next-generation Chevy Bolt with its Ultium um, architecture, so underlying platform, um, battery design, and also its new software platform. So this is what all of its future EVs are going to be built on. Very scant on the details, so no idea when this is happening. Um, uh, interestingly... There was, it was, the announcement was super generic and it just says Chevy Bolt EV, no mention of the Chevy Bolt EUV. So we don't even know if that larger version will be included upon this, if that is, um, was a purposeful omission or not. But what it does mean is that this is going to be the product that takes that that lower price point level. Still not super affordable for everyone, but it's most affordable one. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see what the next generation Chevy Bolt EV looks like because it will be on a new platform. Um, will there be exterior design tweaks or are mostly what we're going to see the changes on more in terms of the range and performance side of things and on the software. So so that's kind of all we have right now, But but an interesting move for sure.
0: Yeah, and like good for GM for keeping a a, a committing to a a, keeping an affordable option EV option in the market. Like no no one else is doing it. Like say what you want about the Bolt, it is you know one of the most practical, affordable, pragmatic EV options out there. You know, also my dad back at at the truth about cars in the old old days, he wrote a really great one of my favorite things he ever wrote was an entry in the in the GM Death Watch, which was our our biggest project. Of course, Elon has subsequently. (laughs) Reframed it that Tesla death was a big thing. Anyway, uh, but he wrote this great post in the GM death watch that was called Name and Form, and basically he just looked at when Toyota and Honda introduced the 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 Civic and the and the um and the Accord. When Honda introduced the Civic and the Accord, Toyota introduced the the Camry and the Corolla. And over the course of time that they introduced and just established those as the best selling cars in America from the basically the eighties, seventies, late seventies until the you know whatever until basically you know very recently when crossover sort of took over um that GM basically had different names nameplates for all of its compact for its competing compact and, and 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 mid-size full-size sedans they would just go through different names every year because they're constantly trying to like reinvent themselves and they never committed to one nameplate and really just you know kaizen continu- continuously improving it over time and establishing its brand equity in the marketplace and this is something that GM, it's, it's sort of an ADD thing that GM has struggled with for a really long time. And I think the bolt is, you know, it's it's a really good place for them to focus and to and to make up for that historical mistake and to build some brand equity. Because again, like the premium EV space is so crowded. It's getting more crowded. The companies aren't making money and they're having to cut prices like, like more 60, 80, hundred dollars like EV trucks. It is not what the market is crying out for. Long term, being able to make affordable EVs is really going to be a, a major competitive advantage, and, and to do that in a slow, steady, methodical way is how you do things successfully in the car business. So, good um, for GM. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that they're
1: going to have. There, <laughs> just to wrap this up, I think that the Bolt will slot in lower than you know price point wise. Then there's the Equinox that's coming out, and then the Blazer. So really the only thing that's left is um, something in the $20,000 range because the Bolt is still more than that. Um, And, you know, right now there isn't any real option for that in the EV marketplace at all. Um, But it's just good to see at least – The attempt to have a lower price point option, the question is going to be how they make money off of it because lower price vehicles have traditionally, automakers have struggled to actually make a profit off of them. Um, That is why the most expensive vehicles are made here in the United States um, because of union jobs and pay and things, but the profit margins are still great. And then the lowest price vehicles are often at least um, historically been made in, in Mexico or other markets in which labor labor is cheaper. So what I'm curious to see is uh, if a GM shifts any production um, to, to lower cost markets, um, what that looks like, because if they're make trying to make room or make way for electric truck production, you would do it here in the U S um, just because surely they could make more money if they made it in Mexico, but that would never go over well with collective bargaining. So, you know, these vehicles will most likely always, the higher price vehicles most likely always be assembled and produced here in the United States. And also with the IRA, there's like, you know, some interesting, there's an interesting little jigsaw puzzle that they need to figure out in terms of where it's produced, how much money they can make, off of these lower priced vehicles. So stay tuned. Um, Lots to follow. On that front. Yes.
2: And on that note, thank yes. you for joining us for another episode of the Atomicast.